The title of this podcast is, Would You, Would you Speak Up, Please? Hell no! The pain of speaking up and the decision that uh, I think one can make very rationally and very self-protectively and uh, probably even uh, from a spiritual point of view uh, very uh, appropriately to not speak up. Um, this uh, comes to me from a uh, kind of Advent discipline that I've tried to keep in recent years, which is each Advent uh, in the roll-up to roll up for the magical mystery door. The roll-up to Christmas would be to read Jack Kerouac's um, a wonderful short novel entitled Visions of Gerard, in which uh, some of the loveliest uh, descriptions of childhood Christmases and childhood Christmas feelings from the standpoint of a grown man uh, come up in Kerouac's wonderful memories of his uh, beloved uh, dead um, brother. And uh, these passages rival the conclusion of uh, Desolation Angels, which is similarly lyrical. And um, one of the uh, most um, apt uh, sentences that leaps out for me from Visions of Gerard as I undertake this sort of Christmas Advent um, uh, discipline is a sentence where uh, Kerouac, uh, writing now in what, in the... um, I think it was actually in 1956, he wrote it in Rocky Mount, the um, sentence where he says, I can't write what I really want to write. This is what this podcast is going to be about. Will you speak up, please? Hell no. I can't write what I really want to write. And what he is saying there is that he feels um, bottled up from giving his full voice uh, because of all sorts of fears that he has, that if he should say or write certain kinds of things, he will uh, stand to lose something or be criticized or possibly imprisoned. Uh, he has. Um, uh, he was always uh, for many years under the spell of a paternity suit uh, from a, an early wife, um, and uh, Jan's mother, and it was a terrible story, and he, he himself often said that he'd been disreputable in conduct, but that's not the point. He, uh, sometimes when it came to that material, that particular material, he felt stranded and unable to write what he had to say out of fear, and who here that I'm talking to hasn't uh, <clears throat> bitten down your lip uh, and swallowed your words out of fear of offending someone? Uh, this is the great artistic issue, I feel, for today when it comes to reality. Cousins uh, believed that people were not mad at him for ideological reasons, and they got very mad at him, uh, to the extent that his uh, entire work was basically covered over and um, buried, and now is uh, completely um, uh, neglected and unknown. Uh, a, a very touching, tragic sentence in uh, Procoli's, uh biography of Cousins says that he is the Uh, most neglected and most unknown of the major American 20th century novelists. That's just a fact. But why was that? He reasoned uh, in uh, twice in his Williamstown journals that the reason people, quote, got so mad at him was because he simply talked about things as they are. His attempt to create an accurate picture of how he saw reality in the world, trying to take away all ideological mediating veils or lenses, but simply describe uh, what went went on in people, the uh, contortions of, of thinking that go on inside human beings, 
as they rationalize and uh, deal with instinctual matters and uh, try to sort of navigate their way through the sufferings and uh, impulses of life, it is shattering. Uh, and that's why, in his opinion, it wasn't because he was anti this or anti that, um, but because he held the mirror up to nature in a certain kind of a way that created enormous discomfort among his readers. And this has been pointed out by many. Something has to explain the... Uh, the mountain of obloquy and now um, amnesia uh, beyond just Orwell's uh, The Ministry of Truth uh, that covers over this extraordinary contribution of By Love Possessed. But what I'm uh, trying to say, he realized that certain um, realities uh, have created uh, such a pushback that that he was the victim of it and he could not believe it. But whether he was right or wrong... Um, I'm just asking you, are there things that you don't want to talk about? I was with a woman I respect very much. She's on the <coughs> conservative side of <coughs> political life, and um, it, it's, it's, uh, she's a friend, and uh, uh, the ideology of it and our disagreements is not important. But she did say something. She said, my fear, and she's very, very a thoughtful person, she said, my fear uh, concerning political correctness is that um, people just don't say what they're thinking. My fear, she said, vis-a-vis -vis political correctness, this is where she was coming from, is that a lot of people just aren't going to say what they're really thinking. Now, I love the word fear because <clears throat> it is a, it's a problem when you um, uh, uh, are afraid to say what you really have to say. Now, interestingly enough, that fear is free-floating because in one era... Uh, to say something very anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian, and fully in favor of human emancipation is the feared thing, and people don't say it, and they conform, and then you have a Arthur Miller or the Crucible, you know, or the McCarthy thing, or the or whatever um, theocratic uh, um, impulses caused Roger Williams to leave uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. In one world, you have religion or the church or something like that being the 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 governing uh, uh, th thought police that uh, prevents you from saying what you want, and you're a Roger Williams and you leave, or you're um, um, wonderful Mrs. whatever her name was, and you're Hutchinson, and you're exiled and then killed uh, uh, by a tomahawk through your head, or uh, you, you're, you're um, Welch uh, at the... Uh, at the uh, McCarthy hearings, uh, other, uh, but you see, it's free floating because if you're under, uh, as the um, Arthur Kessler and many others said, if you're in uh, 1930s Russia, then um, uh, freedom and emancipation <clears throat> is against the left. So the left becomes the repository of suppression, uh, and uh, or in you know the People's Revolution or the Cultural Revolution in uh, in uh, Red China. Remember what Kerouac said? Uh, said the Red Chinese, those kings of ignorance. Now, so you can have uh, the power can be in the hands of the left, or it can be hands of the church. It can be hand in the hands of the. Um, the uh, the anti Dreyfusards, or in the hands of the um, of 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 uh, the, the 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 hippies. I mean, Margaret Atwood can have it, or or John Passos can have it, or uh, the, the power is the free floating thing. But wherever it is, you do very well to keep your eyes and ears open. And so I think of what Kerouac said in that Christmas book, Visions of Gerard. I'm afraid to say what I really think. Well, let me come to cases. Let me give you two examples of this, one I've already referred to, and then um, talk about what do you do when you're really um, 
really uh, afraid to say something. And of course, it is true. You may be afraid to say something because of what it says about you. That is to say, uh, sometimes when I have a strong opinion, it's so anchored in anger or it's so um, <clears throat> hinged to uh, what a Christian might call non-sanctified ideas or thoughts that you're very wary about it. You don't really want to get into a subject because you know that when you get into that subject, that touches a nerve in you that creates... Um, very selfish uh, or enraged uh, entitlements and views, and you're, you're nervous about getting close to that part of yourself. Now, of course, that's a, only a short-term situation because you, you have to get through it ultimately to become a saved and whole person. Um, but uh, and and a, and, a, and a, a person who doesn't you know find his way to purgatory, the bardo, hell, or just sheer unhappiness and isolation and bitterness, whatever you want to call uh, a position of unhappy lostness in life uh, uh, and beyond, uh, you, whatever you want to call it, uh, you, you, you don't want to end there. But you have to go through it. Otherwise, you'll become you're sitting on all sorts of material that creates tremendous resentment and kind of um, boundaried rage, which is bound to come up, whether it's in passive aggression or an ironic humor or an acerbic sarcasm and asperity, whatever it is, it's going to come up. So you ultimately you do need to deal with these things. But what is the thing that, that you today are unable to say? This, of course, by the way, occurs in relationships. What are you afraid to say to your husband? because you think he would get angry <clears throat> or you'd touch a nerve. You know, he'd suddenly turn into that impossible person that he can become. <clears throat> so you sort of tiptoe, you know, around it. Uh, this happens especially at Christmas. You tiptoe around certain subjects because if they come up, you're afraid somebody's going to blow. Lord, she blows! You know, so you, you, uh, you, you're very, very nervous. And uh, so uh, who wants to be that? I mean, that's no way to be reconciled, uh, integrated, and whole, is it? But nevertheless, we are doing that, but I was thinking oh, it affects me in two particular uh, cases. <clears throat> I had uh, recorded uh, two podcasts on the subject when I returned from England recently, which, by the way, does not swing like a pendulum do. <laughs> Bobby's on bikes going two by two. Westminster Abbey, the tower, Big Ben, the rosy red cheeks of the little children. There is the phone. I just love it when it rings. Well, what I was uh, doing, I had come back and was very intrigued uh, by uh, the concluding, the last play of Terence Radigan, which is called Cause Celebre, Cause Celebre. And uh, it's a remarkable way to conclude uh, his uh, career. Uh, and he died uh, actually in the midst of the first London production of it, of which I think he saw the first or second performance in person before he died. But um, Radigan's play... <clears throat> is interesting, not uh, because of the actual uh, psychosexual war between the sexes issue that it so powerfully uh, embodies and portrays and understands and has sympathy with, but it interested me more because of what it says about changing mores. What What is interesting about the Radigan play, I'll say in a minute, but if you compare <clears throat> the... Um, the facts uh, that are very faithfully um, exhibited in uh, Radigan's play Cause Celebre, which starred Glynis Johns originally, but has had many wonderful stars in its television. Uh, and other. I think Helen Mirren played Alma Rattenbury, the hero of the play, uh, in the uh, last uh, production of it. But um, the uh, fact is that the, the case on which Cause Celebre is based is so interesting <clears throat> when you compare it with the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case of 2011 uh, that it, it raises the point not about sexual politics uh, as much as it does about the changing 
values of the world and how one can be caught in the world's standards and values uh, one way uh, and um, uh, and yet 50 years later be caught in exactly the same uh, force of the hurricane of the world's judgment but from the uh, absolutely different ideological end that the ideology changes but the effect and control of the powerful ideology is the same and what I had, uh, I recorded two podcasts about it but I didn't publish them because I didn't want to get into something as highly um, charged and hot button as uh, the Dominic Strauss-Kahn case. And I have no opinion about that. I don't know anything about that except uh, what I saw in relation to um, other cases like it in earlier history, which are in some ways so interestingly different from it. And what I had seen in the uh, Cause Celebra play, which is based on a celebrated murder case in the 1920s, I think, or early 30s, uh, called the Alma Rattenbury case, uh, in which a a, a woman was charged with murdering her husband, and uh, she um, did not, in fact, do it. Uh, her lover, her young teenaged lover, she was in her 50s, and her young uh, teenaged lover, uh, out of jealousy of, of the woman, who, in fact, was still having sexual relationships with her 60-year-old husband, the young teenage lover um, uh, killed uh, uh, from behind uh, by simply battering his head uh, Mrs. Rattenbury's husband. And uh, she was arrested, as was the young man. And the entire uh, English media, this arrested English media, like the, uh, similarly to the case of the Windsor boy, uh, well, I forget the original name of that. It has a fascinating uh, name, hyphenated name, but it arrested English public attention for months. And uh, she was charged with a murder <clears throat> which she clearly definitely did not commit and which was confessed to by another man, by the younger man, even though she had been involved in a very, very lurid uh, extramarital affair with this young sort of gardener or handyman. But <clears throat> what was so interesting about that case is that Everybody assumed that she was guilty. Everybody assumed, but by definition, she had uh, used her charms to inveigle this poor young kid into her sexual uh, um, spider web, and that she was entirely and totally to blame in every way. And when... um, she was uh, she the, the fact did not they couldn't convict her because she hadn't done it. The evidence was that the other man had done it overwhelmingly, and he agreed to say that he did, and he did. It wasn't a covering over. She tried to cover for him <clears throat> out of a love that she felt at the time. It's all in the records. In any event, what happened was she was so hounded she did not commit it, but everybody assumed she did because she was a woman. Everyone assumed that she had done it, and all the English opinion, this was universal, uh, went on the boys. This poor kid, this poor young man of 18, had been trapped uh, by this powerful sexual viper uh, into doing this deed. And uh, when uh, the... um, uh, the jury uh, acquitted her fully and completely, but found him guilty. Uh, she went out uh, and killed herself. And she wrote a journal entry, but just before she killed herself, that is extremely moving. And uh, uh, Radigan slightly rewrites that at the end of his play, but it, it's extremely moving. But she was unjustly accused of something she didn't do. And But whether she did it or not, everybody, uh, that's not the point. Everybody assumed because she was a woman that she was guilty. And everyone assumed that because this young man was a young man and could have been their son, quote, end of quote, he must be innocent. And after she killed herself and he received an imprisons, a sentence of imprisonment, 350,000 English people 
signed a petition. Let me repeat that. 350,000 English people, and this was in the, you know, this is a pre-World War II England, the King's Speech England. 350,000 people signed this a petition uh, asking for leniency because he couldn't, he must be by definition as a man who'd been trapped by a woman. He must by definition be innocent. And he was released. And he ended up his life in a Bournemouth, uh, England, uh, very anonymous and married. I think he went abroad for a time, but isn't that amazing? So public opinion overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly assumed that she was guilty and he was, um, uh, and, and he was not. And uh, although, and when she was acquitted, they hounded her, they screamed, they, people, it was a perp walk situation. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people gathered around the, the courtroom to heap abuse when she was seen. And the, to even get her in the courtroom, they had to dress her in uh, the uh, Scotland Yard, the constabulary uniforms, because they, they were afraid she'd be lynched. Now, what's so interesting about that is whether who is right or wrong is when I thought about the perp walk for Dominique Strauss-Kahn, which is another case, and again, I'm not talking about the guilt or the innocence, but these horrific things that happen in people's lives. I'm talking about the fact that um, 75, 80 years later, cultural mores would so have changed that when it first came out about the... uh, the uh, Novotel or whatever that thing took place, what, what, the crime that was committed or that was accused, that everyone assumed that in this world that we live in, that Dominique, not in France maybe, but, but here, and certainly everything I read, assumed that Dominique Strauss-Kahn was guilty. By definition, he was hounded and screamed at and uh, you felt he might have been lynched too. If you if you go back and watch the videos of his coming to his uh, arraignment hearings, uh, the hundreds and hundreds of people screaming for blood and just assuming that he, because of male power, must by definition be guilty. Now remember, male power exists and male taking uh, advantage of women exists. There's no question about that. And whatever the people thought about Alma Rattenbury and uh, uh, George, uh, I think his name was Stoner, uh, this uh, man uh, that uh, that occurred, that also um, the, 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 these things exist all over the place. Uh, many plays. Read Shakespeare and you'll get a nice read on both sides of the equation. But the point is, what is fascinating is that in uh, 1930, whatever it was, everyone assumed that Alma Alma Rattenbury was guilty before she was even tried. And today, all the forces that I read about assumed the other. And... Uh, the case collapsed. Again, please, you're going to identify too much, you see. This is why I'm afraid to talk about it. Here, write it, right, I'm, I'm giving you right now why I'm afraid to talk about it. Because you're going to say, <clears throat> or people who might hear this are going to say, well, he's, he's stacking the deck in favor of Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Or he's stacking, no, I'm not doing that. I have absolutely no, what do they say in some parts of the world? I have no dog in that fight. I mean, his, his, uh, the past that he has, the other examples of this that we know about, the extraordinary wealth, um, all of these things plead, uh, you know, do I want to have dinner uh, in that family? You know, duh. Um, and the, uh, the woman who was the accuser, uh, who wouldn't sympathize with someone who's been through the different things she has and given our ways we see Occupy Wall Street? I mean, who wouldn't sympathize with, 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 with her? 
Uh, and and yet, uh, all I'm saying is that right there, you see um, this extraordinary shift, uh, such that but, but but the same murderous rage. Now, the case of Oscar Wilde is a perfect example. When Oscar Wilde was um, was uh, found guilty, uh, he uh, the, people danced in the streets. They lit bonfires. The working class, the 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 aggrieved um, blue collar people of England in their thousands were just thrilled to see Oscar Wilde um, it wasn't the liberals, you know. I mean, it, it was. I mean, it wasn't the conservatives. It, it wasn't uh, the Tories. It was the 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 the, the labor, the people that were in the future bosom of the of Blackpool. They were the ones that. <clears throat> they had fires on the streets rejoicing at the the terrible conviction of Oscar Wilde. Compare that with today. I mean, just compare that with today. So you, all I'm trying to say is not about who was right and who was wrong. My point is that human malice um, is a is a free-floating phenomenon that will fix itself on conflicting ideologies with the passage of time. I want to remind you of a wonderful uh, quote from uh, Aldous Huxley in his book, The Devils of Loudin, which I recommend, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, uh, in reference to a movie. The Devils of Loudin... Uh, 1951, you can get it, and I won't even describe it. There's just simply one sentence. He says, "In 15, we we have every reason to believe that in 1592, um, sexual behavior was pretty much the same as it is today." Let me repeat that. We have every reason to believe that in or in 1592, sexual behavior appears to have been the same as it is today. Holding steady. It's only the way people thought about it that's different. Now, that's very interesting. The behavior was the same. It's just murder still occurred. Jealous rages occurred. Power transactions and exploitative behavior uh, occurred. Uh, but we have every... That, 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 that's never changed. We can go back 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 25,000 years, back to the, the X-Files movie, you know, Dallas, 40,000 B.C. One of my great... I think one of the great things, you know, Dallas in 40,000 B.C., whatever that is, fight the future. But look, look... Um, uh, it's the same. It's just the way we think about it. That's what's interesting. And that's what makes you not want to talk because you're afraid if you talk about, if you say it's the same, it's just the way we think about it. People will say, well, you're relativizing values. Well, you are because you see an experience that these things shift. Oscar Wilde, Alma Rattenbury, now a hero, Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Uh, the things change. And let me give you one other quote from Philip Wiley in his book, A Theory of Morals, which is a typical Wiley rant and yet full of insight, full of insight, yet in, in a, an almost unreadable um, um, can from canned heat. He, um, he says this, um, every age in society has had very thorough arrangements, anent, A-N-E-N-T, sex. Every human society and culture has had very definite arrangements concerning sex. Uh, he says, um, they amount to a powerful group assertion around which right and wrong become fixed and constellated. In other words, the sexual arrangements of Maori culture or of um, 16th century uh, Catholic France or uh, 20th century um, English bourgeoisie, uh, early 20th century or early 21st century uh, New York newspapers um, – uh, what is that wonderful, that wonderful t-shirt, New Yorker cartoon of a guy wearing a t-shirt that says, 
I survived the media coverage of Hurricane Irene. I think that's what it was. I survived the media coverage of Hurricane Irene. Well, again, if you if you saw some of that, the, the, we're talking about the there are hurricanes in every era, in every age, in every year. It's how we think about it. That is what is interesting. So Wiley says these arrangements, which every society has, and they change, as Huxley said, constantly, they amount to a powerful group assertion around which right and wrong are constellated. Damn. Well, all this is to say that what I'm interested here is in not the ideology or the value evaluation of the behavior, but that the ideology and evaluation of the behavior is shifting. Um, who said something? Let me think. I think Cousin said uh, in a, a very early letter, uh, I think after one of his earlier novels, he said, from the very beginning of my life, I saw, I seemed to see very quickly that attitudes and human um, interests were constantly changing. That attitudes and human interests were constantly changing. And this affected the way I viewed reality. Now, that is a true statement, that worthy of belief. That is something that is actually the case. Attitudes and evaluations are constantly shifting. But you see, if I talk about this, people are gonna, they're gonna glom onto the ideology of what they think one might be saying. And you're so afraid to be hit by the ideology that you'll shut up. Now, I'm gonna say one other thing. And, uh, I, I, I could talk more about cousins who believe that the 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 weight of the violent attacks upon him by what he regarded as the literary establishment uh, had to do with the fact that he talked in a in a way that was too unvarnished about simply about reality and the way people actually think, and that's why uh, he was accused of being uh, this. Uh, um, uh, apostle of resignation and middlebrow, John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower, America. But when you read the novels, I mean, his description of what goes on inside Helen Detwiler's mind, quite unconscious, real, subconscious, but not explicitly conscious of what goes on in Helen Detwiler's mind in relationship to her brother Ralph is so unveiling and shattering. It's like hearing a, a, the most powerful sermon you've ever heard that suddenly, you know, this is me. It holds the mirror up to nature. I feel like, you know, when I read that part uh, or Arthur Winter's inner dialogue as Mrs. Pratt circles for the kill in the latter of quarter of the novel, as Mrs. Pratt circles for the kill, um, um, uh, as 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 she's coming down uh, on his relationship with his law partner's wife, um, as you understand his inner anguish and anxiety and confusion and deep deep threat, as she circles for the kill, you say to yourself, you you wouldn't be like like a, 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 a Claudius in Hamlet, you know, give me some light. You know what is it? Uh, uh, Hamlet says the play's the thing we're in. I'll catch the conscience of the king. Well, in a in a substitutive symbolic acting out in this description of what goes on in Arthur Winter or what goes on in Helen Detwiler's mind, you see yourself so revealed and put up there in a giant screen that you can't read it because it's so painful because it's about you and me. And that's what I believe actually is the great issue with Cousins. Uh, the the reality or, or Reggie Shaw, the doctor, what the, the misogyny and the alcoholic despair, the untreated alcoholic despair that takes the form of misogyny and deep, 
deep um, bitterness inside the the uh, the sort of breaking down physician in Brockton again towards the end, and he's confronted by Arthur Winter. Reggie, what's what's wrong with you? When you see what goes on inside Doctor Shaw's mind, you can't read it because it goes on inside the mind of everybody. It goes on in the side of the mind of all women and men at some level. They have they have found themselves in the angry bitter mode of a of a Doctor Reginald Shaw. Good Lord, Reggie, what's wrong with you? So that was wrong. But let me finish my concluding example. Is simply the devils. Now he wrote the novel Huxley in fifty one. It was made into a celebrated, notorious movie uh, called The Devils uh, in nineteen seventy by Ken Russell, who recently died. And this movie, by the way, is going to be released in its uncensored sort of final print, because it's so blasphemous and anti-Christian. I don't hold a candle for the movie here, uh, but I've seen it. Uh, this movie is um, it's a notorious movie that is now being released in April of 2012 by the British Film Institute, and it's now, of course, considered a work of highly iconoclastic art. And today, everybody will be thrilled to see the Catholic Church absolutely psychosexually savaged, as it is in this extraordinary, and I think really visionary movie, angry, horrible, deeply malevolent vision of life and of Christianity, but nonetheless, when it came out, it wasn't even, it didn't even come out in theaters. And MGM, to this day, you can't see the censored bits, but it'll come out. And I haven't, I've seen the movie uncensored. As a matter of fact, I saw it long, long ago, and I won't explain how or why, but I did. And the movie is very, very well made and horrific. It's classic Ken Russell, but it, because of its Christian, uh, the implications vis-a-vis psychosexual behavior and uh, Christian dogma and the church, it's uh, very, very relevant and apt and hot. But one of the things that I thought of there's a horrifying scene, and I, I'm going to finish this in under the time. There's a horrifying scene of Inquisition in which three judges who are wearing, you know, those long pointed white, they look like Ku Klux Klan, but the kind they wear in Seville, Spain still, and, you know, Holy Week, they, they look like these sort of huge long sorcerer's caps, but they cover the face except for a mouth flap and, uh, and where you can see the eyes. It's all like Lost Continent, the Hammer Horror film I talked about. The Lost continent. Well, you have to have a sense of humor because these three inquisitors are so horrible. And the way they they uh, they um, silence Father Grandier, played by Oliver Reed, in a very, very powerful performance, they represent so completely the absolute worst face of the Inquisition. And it's so well done. You, it, it's riveting and horrifying. And um, that scene is enough to make you run out of any kind of church institution forever and ever. But what <clears throat> is false about the movie? <clears throat> and fortunately, uh, if you read the book, the book is not false. What's false about the movie, it says that Christianity has, by definition, an inquisitorial persona that ends up in uh, hypocritically burning basically good but flawed men like uh, Father Grandier at the stake and uh, rejoicing over their, uh, this barbarous injustice. And uh, what, it, what it, the movie does not say, it does, and the cross is everywhere. I mean, Ken Russell really goes out on the limb in this movie. And as I say, it's well made, but I don't recommend it. But... <clears throat> Um, and Oliver Reed is very sympathetic. He, he, there's something about a Christian martyr under it all, but because of the psychosexual aspect, it's hard to 
really the, the movie is set up in a very definite way but these these horrible inquisitors who are preventing people from saying what they have to say so he is silenced the the good man flawed but good man is silenced well um all you need to do is 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 look at the uh uh, is look at what happened in connection with the the case I described earlier in Lower Manhattan, and you have a sort of an odd re repetition of it, but from a different ideology. As a matter of fact, from the exact 180 degrees, it just shows you when you go 180 degrees, you have ideology. If you shifted it from 1592 Loudun to the middle and uh, made a general statement about the inquisitorial character of a form of Christianity. Um, but then didn't didn't go all the way over to the inquisitorial power of the huge, a sort of a, an overwhelmingly uh, defended ideology of sex from the from the left. If you if you stood in the middle, if you brought it up ninety degrees and not one hundred and eighty degrees, you'd probably be much closer to something like the truth. And the the greatness of that book, and it's a wonderful book. The book by um, by Huxley, I recommend very highly. It's a good read too. Because he's constantly interrupting himself to compare the Inquisition to Soviet Russia. Or he's comparing McCarthy and the Inquisition on the one hand. He will compare even-handedly with anti-Franco uh, Stalinists in 1930s France. Or uh, the Red Chinese and uh, the show trials. Or the Stalin show trials. Or the Cultural Revolution in Beijing. He, he's, const he's never letting ideology get off the hook. He says if ideology is running the show, whether it's on the right, so to speak, as it did in Loudun under Cardinal Riche, or whether it's on the left, as it did in the places where Huxley hung his hat for a while in the 1930s, either is the wrong way. And ultimately, uh, there's got to be another way. And that's why the story of uh, uh, Father Serin, uh, which he ends the book on, which is not in the movie, needless to say, the very uplifting and remarkable sort of Larry Darrell spiritual journey of Father Père Serin to wisdom, truth, peace, reconciliation, love, and a true resignation nation and acquiescence before the facts of the divine tranquility um, recollected in quiet that is a very it's a very um, synthetic book whereas the a movie is very uh, um, dialogical is the wrong word it's not even dialectical it's highly antagonistic so the movie is an antagonistic one-sided uh, approach to the material which Huxley who was the author of the book on which the movie is accurately based. Huxley describes what we see with those three hooded monsters underneath that white burlap. He describes something um, Huxley does in which this desire to silence is universal and occurs on all um, stations of the ideological clock. And so that's, you see, a little why I haven't wanted to say anything. I've been scared. So... um but you see, if I hope the way I've said it today allows you to understand that it can be said. The point is not weighing one ideology against another or weighing Dominique Strauss-Kahn in the balance with Alma Rattenberry. The problem is weighing anybody. Because when we weigh according to certain mental, conceptual uh, evaluations, we inevitably leave out the human being. And that happened with Grandier. Father Grandier and the devils, no one, the church did not see the human being. In some ways, the quite remarkable and deeply compassionate human being that existed in Father Grandier. And finally, the man of immense courage. 
in him. The church with its ideology was not able to see uh, what they, the actual person, both bad, and there were some terrible things about him, and good, that, that we're not able to see. Similarly, we cannot see these modern-day devils that we see. We're not able, we, we couldn't see Alma Rattenbury as she really was, which was a terribly flawed, unbelievably self-willed and in many ways extremely manipulative human being. And yet also a person who was trying to find a way through a suffering life. A woman who was trying to find a way. And Radigan conveys the depth without hiding the frivolity and ultimately the venality and the, even the malice of, uh, the, the, the heedless malice you might say, of Alma Rattenbury. Similarly, I'm sure the story will one day be told about people more current to us, but I don't know that story. I leave you with a general idea. And uh, uh, would you speak up, please? Hell no.